it goes back to I'm, I'm basically a historian. I I'm, I love the the thatness of what's going on in the first century. Mm. But as the, the more you get your hands dirty with that stuff, the more it's about real life. It's about real problems, real people on the street level. Yeah. Um, in Corinth or Ephesus, wherever it is, and you can sense connections being made all over the place to the real life of where we are on the yeah. street today. Hey everyone, welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This is Justin Forbes, your host, and you're listening to an episode within the Youth Ministry series. And so we've done the best we can to go out and find folks who will help us think well about youth ministry. We will lift up signs of hope and tell stories that are just beautiful. We'll talk about practical tools that might be helpful. And we'll also talk about hard things, the challenges that we're all facing as we seek to live out our calling to love God, to love kids, uh, and to do the best we can to be faithful witnesses to God's work in the world. So I hope this is a gift to you. I hope there might be even just one thing that you can use and take away from this episode that will help you live into your calling as folks doing youth ministry. Okay, everybody, before we jump into this episode with N.T. Wright, I get to introduce to you a new voice that will be joining the podcast, the one and only Caitlin Posey. Kate, you're on here with me now? I'm here. Kate. So for those of you listening, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast so far, you've just been hearing myself. But Kate has been on our team here at the Missing Voices Project at Flagler College and has agreed to jump in and help us manage the podcast and and co-host it with me. So I'm really grateful that you're going to do that, Kate. I'm really grateful to be here. Thanks for including me on this. Of course. So Kate, how long have we known each other and where did we meet? (laughs) So I met (laughs) you when you were transitioning from your MDiv program at Princeton. And then you had just moved down here. I think it was in 2015 because that's when I remember adding youth ministry courses while I was a student at Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida. And I remember seeing you come into the class and you were so passionate about these ideas. And I just remember whenever... Martha, who was our professor at the time, she was handing the program over to you. Um, you know, Martha's very quiet and contemplative and pastoral. And then she would like hand over the sessions to you and you would be like furiously scribbling all over the whiteboard, like so passionate about these ideas. And I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, this guy is Awesome. You know, I was so excited to learn from you. And um, so I met you when you, you know, started taking over the youth ministry program here. And then I had you for my senior year, a couple youth ministry classes. And then, um, Mm -hmm. and then I graduated and got married and uh, moved to West Palm Beach, where I lived for about a year and a half with my husband. And then we went to Princeton, New Jersey, and I uh, went to Princeton Seminary for uh, for a master's program there. And 
after my time there, yeah, came back here and I'm working with you at the Missing Voices Project. So it feels a little bit of a full circle. Yeah. Well, what's fun about part of that story is that you really were only in the program for about a year, year and a half Mm -hmm. at Flagler. And you made such an impression that, you know, years later, when we were talking about building the team of people that we wanted to help, you know, run the Missing Voices Project, your name was pretty quickly at the top of that list. And, you know, we started reaching out to you while you were still a student at Princeton Seminary to say, hey, would you be interested in being a part of this? And some of that job has evolved and changed from our original conversations. But the cool thing is that we just, you know, we knew that we wanted you on our team. So that's uh, a nice little affirmation of you and your gifts and your skills and and just who you are that we want you on the team in that way. Um, and so we were really grateful that you did agree to come down and be a part of the team. And your husband, Matt, was 100% on board and he's awesome to have in our community. Um, and then you actually grew your family a little bit. You know, <laughs> we got this we got this kid, Ollie hanging out. So since you've been here, you have um, you have multiplied a bit and we have how old is Oliver as we're recording this now? Oliver is nine months old and huh. yeah, he's so much fun. We love him a lot. Yeah. Awesome. He is great. So tell us uh, real quick, what is your job with the Missing Voices Project? What do you do? Sure. I am the assistant coordinator for the project and I have a couple different roles here. Um, I help a lot with some of the administrative tasks of the job. And I also help execute our research interests. So because our grant um, is through the Lilly Foundation, we have certain research interests. We have a a research consultant, Katie Douglas, out of Seattle Pacific that uh, we work with. And so I work under her and help execute the research interests through uh, her leadership and then also through just our internal staff's leadership and vision. So it's pretty Mm -hmm. fun to be able to do a couple different things. Um, A lot of event planning as well, which is uh, part of how I use my degree. I have a MA in Christian formation. And so Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to, to see how much events can be formative in people's lives, a kind of experiential knowing that um, is often really impactful. And I actually experienced that quite a bit while I was a student because I I really retained so much information when I would go on study abroad trips. And so, you know, this kind of uh, experiential uh, and knowledge is just really uh, fun to help cultivate and and running these events. So a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything and uh, I'm just really, really glad to have my toes in a couple different areas and be able to uh, support the project in the ways that it needs to be. And I just work with some amazing people too. So that's always fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty happy with our team. Uh, and I love the idea that somehow your your degree in terms of Christian education and formation, and I know, you know what I know of you in terms of your sense of calling to be a part of education and formation within the church and in the, in the larger community, uh, that that actually intersects here with the podcast. So, you know, if folks, if you've been listening to this podcast so far, you've heard a couple different styles of episodes. You've heard, uh, you know, some classic sort of interviews about particular topics that relate to the Missing Voices Project. 
You've also heard uh, some of our experiences in Los Angeles um, that we took our lead innovators to LA for a couple of days and, and we recorded all of that so that you could listen in. Um, and moving forward, we have some episodes from our youth ministry forum and, and Kate will be setting those up and uh, sharing those with you all after this episode. This one's a little bit different. Um, you know, I was in Scotland. I, I end up uh, in Scotland almost every summer <clears throat> right now as a part of my PhD studies and uh, went down to St. Andrews to visit a friend uh, from my seminary days. And she is working under Tom Wright right now. And so we were able to set up having a conversation with uh, Dr. Wright, Professor Wright, and um, bought him a latte and took it to his office and hung out for a little while, which is what this episode is. So that was that was pretty fun. Got to be honest, I was geeking out a little bit. You know, that's to be expected. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so our plan moving forward, though, is that with each episode, you'll hear either Kate or myself or a mixture of us um, hosting the conversations, sort of explaining what's going on and all that good stuff. So, Kate, I'm really excited that you're uh, going to be a part of this with me. So for those people out there that I imagine are few and far between that have not really heard of NT Wright, uh, would you give just a quick background on who it is that we're about to share an interview with? Sure. So uh, N.T. Wright is uh, a leading biblical scholar of New Testament. Uh, he is uh, the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England. Um, he's now serving as the chair of New Testament and early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews. And he's also taught New Testament studies for 20 years at a couple different universities, Cambridge, McGill, Oxford. Um, as well as being a leading Bible scholar, N.T. Wright also publishes a lot of books. So he's a really popular author. You might have heard of some of his books. A couple popular ones are The Case for the Psalms, Simply Jesus, Surprised by Hope, which is on my kitchen counter, and I'm excited to read that one, uh, Simply Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are just a couple of his works. But he's a, you know, just a renowned author and just a wonderful human being. I'm so excited for, uh, for you all to be able to hear from him uh, during this conversation with Justin. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was a good time. Um, my favorite part of the interview is when he tells us that his most rebellious act was becoming an evangelical. <laughs> I know. I just thought he is hilarious. Like, gosh, I, I felt like I left that interview of just listening to it smarter. You know, I just thought, wow, I have so much more to think about. <laughs> right, so. right. Yeah, it was good. Well, I hope everybody enjoys the episode and I hope you enjoy Kate being a part of the podcast from here on out. And Kate, thanks so much. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to it. I'd love to start with kind of an interesting question for you. Um, who were you at 16 or 17 yourself? And what role did Jesus, the gospel, or the church play? You're already laughing. <laughs> uh, I, I was one of these boring people that grew up in a Christian home. And uh, I, I never had a conversion experience because it was, well, I had experiences of various sorts mm -hmm. from an early age and just kind of knew from, 
I don't know, roughly the age of seven or eight or so, that I was going to be ordained. That was a sort of a knowledge really? rather than a sort of shall I, shan't I. It was just, okay, that's what it is. And I was then surprised later on to discover that most people who were ordained did not know from the age of seven that <laughs> most people, it kind of dawns on them a lot later, sometimes a great deal later. So my, but that was a very, a very middle of the road Anglican church, neither high nor low nor, nor anything, just solid old fashioned Anglicanism in the 50s. Um, and my teenage rebellion consisted, apart from playing the guitar, of um, becoming the evangelical on the side, much to my <laughs> parents' alarm, um, through um, script union boys' camps in, in Scotland, actually, where I acquired my love of the Scottish Highlands through um, every Easter and summer going and climbing mountains and so on and uh, having Bible studies as you do. So um, I suppose age 16, 17, I was really just getting my teeth into um, little bits of more serious engaged Bible study, um, uh, rather in the fashion of sort of colonizing certain key bits. I remember one time getting very excited about the John 15 and I'm the vine, you are the branches. And something had grabbed me about that. I remember going back to school and leading a little Bible study on that and feeling I wasn't sure about what the rest of John was about, but here was one bit that I actually, I lived there now. That was, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so it was, it was a matter of, of some, some little bits that were making sense. Um, not that I didn't believe that the rest did make sense. It was sure. just that I hadn't sort of got into it at that stage. Um, and then starting gradually to work out from there. Um, mm. And uh, so, so yes, in a funny way, it was a sort of teenage rebellion. Um, uh, to become evangelical. To become, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Because simply because in, in my parents' world, that was basically unknown. Sure. Um, they had heard of Billy Graham. Um, they'd heard of um, people like Ian Paisley in Northern Ireland, and both of those filled them with dread. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when three of their four children ended up being evangelicals, they, they, they gradually realised there was something, something going on. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, good. good. Okay, so um, let's assume that we were able to shove a few thousand youth ministers into your office here. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, it would be miserable. Um, but you could stand up on the desk here and answer this question. Uh, kind of a base question here. What is the Bible for? <laughs> uh, well, okay, straight off the top of my head, I would say the Bible is there to teach us how to think Christianly, um, as well as to teach us what to think Christianly. Mm -hmm. um, and I, that, that's, that's quite an important distinction in that um, to, the, the Bible is not the sort of book that you go to to look up the correct answer. I and mean, I had somebody in here an hour ago who was doing a, a master's dissertation. I pull off a couple of dictionaries to look up some key terms. We look them up. We put the books back on the shelf. Fine. That's what those dictionaries and things are for. Right. The Bible precisely isn't like that. In a minimal level it is, but, uh, but actually it's there to be wrestled with and mm. and. And if I say, for instance, that Galatians is the word of God, I mean that Galatians, warts and all, sharp elbows and goodness knows what, is the word of God, mm. and that I mustn't pretend it's simply a nice easy list of either rules or doctrines or whatever. Yeah. It's a book which demands to be wrestled with um, and which will wrestle back. Um, right. And so that's what I mean by the Bible is there to teach us how to think as well as what to think. Mm. And that as one reads it whole, 
Genesis to Revelation, which I mean, I, somebody told me when I was, I think, 12, that I should start reading the Bible daily, and I started. And somebody told me when I was about 18 that one ought to read the whole Bible every year. And I basically started then. I have no idea how much Bible I read in a year now, probably twice through on average. Um, but uh, that I, I regard actually as a basic Christian discipline. Obviously, for my field, it's a mm. basic academic sure. discipline as well. Um, but as you do that, the bits demand to be put together somehow, and mm. the putting together and the figuring out of the larger narrative and the uh, the living with its puzzles and challenges that is seems to be part of normal Christian maturity. And I would I would hope. Um, and so anything that enables people to do that, wherever you know, people come from such totally different context and obviously right. today a lot of people do not read that much i used to get emails from people saying i read your book such and such and i have this question now it's usually i saw a youtube video of you saying something and, <laughs> and what about this and normally my answer is actually i've written some things called books you might be able to get, get hold of them and that might help you with, you know because if you have a five minute youtube sure. show, anyway you hear what i'm saying so right, I'm, right. I'm aware that reading the bible is a challenge because reading is a challenge in the way that it wasn't um but right from the start, one of the things I think that the early church teachers were teaching people was quite literally to read, mm. just as the early Christians were pioneers in book technology, the shift from the scroll to the codex. So an awful lot of people who became Christians would be functionally pretty much illiterate, right. you know, able to scrawl their name and not much besides. And they were being taught to read because they needed to read the scriptures. So from the beginning, right. learning to read, then learning how to think, and in the middle of it, learning what to think. Right. That That's okay. Yeah, so, okay, so we know how to read. launch into a whole lecture. No, no, that's good. So now we know how to read often. The kids we work with know how to read. They just don't know to love to yeah, read at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. So somehow we have to offer some sort of invitation into that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which I, I hope those five-minute YouTube videos function as an invitation into something else. One would hope, absolutely, right. yes, yes. And I, I seldom if ever sit down to make a five-minute YouTube video. What's happened is I've been doing a lecture or something somewhere, sure. and somebody's just taken it and put it out there. Right. And I'm usually rather horrified to see. Are you? <laughs> yeah, well, where did that come from? <laughs> or something which was, or you were quite something that was just a, a one-off. Um, you know, with some friends after a conference or whatever, sure. turns out to be being watched and quoted and think, mm, yes, isn't that odd? Because, you know, when you write a book, there are editors and people go through it and uh, dish, dish over an article. Right. And you kind of sort it out. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so can I roll with that thought? Um, part of the work of youth ministry is to open the scriptures with kids and teach them how to read, how to love sure. uh, the scriptures, how to engage. One of the things that's really fun is to sit with a kid who's maybe never read anything in the scripture before. It wasn't raised in the church, maybe yeah. has no, would open it to page one and kind of be, you know, what am I doing? You know, mm -hmm. where would you start if you had someone that had yeah. never opened the scriptures before? Yeah. Where would you yeah, start? Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. I, I often ask myself that question depending on who I'm with and whether it's family and grandchildren, whatever. Sure. Um, uh, I think ideally one of the gospels um, because. Really, um, and you can say this in different ways and it can be misunderstood, but Jesus is the focus and interpreter of the scriptures. Sure. Um, and uh, it's such a great story, quite apart from anything else. 
And so perhaps Mark, because it's short and, and bang, there you got it, straight from the shoulder. My, my youngest son actually organised a couple of weeks ago in London an evening in his church where they had four or five of them reading and they read right through Mark uh, mm. with, with a 20-minute break in the middle. And uh, I just listened to the, the audio of it and it was, it was great. Yeah. And of course, you realise the biblical books are written to be heard like that. Yeah. And 99% of contemporary Christians have never, ever heard a book of the Bible, except possibly Philemon or Three John or something, <laughs> read like that. Um, and it's our loss, because the, the, the power of the whole story is, you can't even imagine the power of that story when you just read 10 verses or even 15 verses. And okay, there's all the time in the world to read the 10 verses and to preach on it and to do a Bible study on it and to say, right, this week we're looking at this passage and so on. Yeah. But actually, to get the full sweep of the thing is so much more important. And uh, huh. uh, I had a friend who, after he graduated, went and worked in um, in a place in the East End of London with some really a really rough area with sort of a, a youth a youth club ministering to people at the bottom end. And to begin with, he got quite depressed. And the guy who was running the the club, he was doing a job by day and then running the youth centre by night. And the guy who was running it said to him. Um, you need to read Romans every day. And he said, you mean a chapter a day? He said, no, the whole thing every day for wow. a month. And he said, for a month, he came home from work, made a cup of tea and read Romans, chapter 116, bang, and did that every day for a month. He said it was completely life transforming and just to feel this whole thing. Wow. Um, again, how many people have done that? Um, it's, it's, it's not known really in our subcultures now. So I would say start with the gospel, um, quite possibly Mark, short and sweet and clear. Yeah. Um, but if they get Mark, they might all want to graduate onto John or Luke or Matthew. Um, but also fairly soon, some of the Psalms, um, I would I would say. Um, and the Psalms have got so much and the poetry there sometimes will depending entirely on the personality, some people will naturally respond to poetry who won't respond to um, more formal... It is a personality thing, depending on sure. all sorts of personality indicators. Um, but so I would, it's one of the extraordinary things about the Bible is the range of genre, yeah. so that there is a way in for everybody. And sure. it's a matter of then finding with this group and this person, etc., what the way in is likely to be for them. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm, I feel really affirmed that you picked Mark because that's what I've always done. <laughs> I wanted to like high five you as soon as you said that. <laughs> well, famously, the story of um, Anthony Bloom, who was the great Russian Orthodox Archbishop in the emigre in Paris in the 50s and 60s. I heard him lecture in Oxford in the late 60s and uh, an amazing guy who'd managed to get out of Russia when life was just getting wow. too much. Um, and he had been a, a, a young communist in his, I think, late teens, and one day heard a Christian ranting on about Jesus and thought, oh, this crazy stuff. And he went home, he told the story himself, went home, he said, I was going to write a pamphlet or an article or a booklet or something that would disprove this nonsense once for all. He said, I thought before I did that, I'd better just read one of these silly things to, <laughs> to, to see what was going on. So he got hold of a dusty old Bible from somewhere and looked and discovered Mark was the shortest. So he said, I don't want to waste any time, so read Mark. He said it was only much later he realised God has a sense of humour. Mark was exactly the book for somebody in that frame of mind. Oh, wow. And he sat up all night, he read Mark, he read Matthew, Luke, John, and by the morning he was a Christian. <laughs> and, and a great, a saintly, amazing man of prayer and faith and wow. wisdom. 
Yeah. So, can do it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Who opened the scriptures with you? Is there anyone in particular that you remember? I had a mentor through my teens who used to run the Scottish um, Scripture Union Boys Camps, a wonderful saintly man called Richard Gorry, who died just recently, just within the last year, mm. at a great age, late 80s. And uh, he was a humble, very wise, a very knowledgeable guy who had just poured himself into working with teenage boys. Um, wow. in, um, in He was a school chaplain in Edinburgh, but then he ran the, these boys' camps. And he was just a faithful patient, very nice, very friendly, but not showy. Um, mm-hmm. Was just, let, let's actually see what the text says. And it was, okay, he had, as we all do, he had his own basic system, sort of standard, fairly standard British evangelicalism. Um, but for him, the text was the text. And, and you know, the, as long as we were opening it, looking at it, and mm-hmm. scratching our heads and asking God for wisdom, and that was what mattered. His name is Richard? Richard Gorry, G-O-R-R-I-E, yes. Didn't write much, a couple of little books. Um, just a, a, a great pastoral heart and a great man of prayer. Did you keep up with him over the years? A bit. A bit. A bit, yes. Um, yeah, I visited him and his wife just a year or so ago, because <clears throat> obviously he was failing there. Sure. They lived south of Glasgow in retirement. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I think people that do youth ministry, um, so many of the kids they work with and walk with through life mm-hmm. and love and serve and suffer with, it's so rare to be able to see someone like yourself come out of that time. It can be such a discouraging experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, if, if you had your office full of youth ministers like still, um, what sort of encouragement or word of hope would you try to offer? I mean, these people who are burying kids yeah, and suffering yeah, kids and yeah, celebrating yeah, kids yeah, as well, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it can feel like yes, such a discouragement. It is, it is odd, isn't it? And I, I wish I had kept up more with some of the people that, um, for instance, that I prepared for confirmation when I was a college chaplain right. in Cambridge and then in Oxford. Um, and very few of them I've now kept up with because since I left Oxford in '93. I've done one, two, three. This is my fourth job since then. I've never stayed anywhere longer than seven and a half years, so it's a bit crazy, really. Um, but it makes it impossible, actually, even at sort of Christmas card level, to keep up with folk, um, sure. which is too bad. I, I, I wish I had done. Um, and likewise, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I Sadly, I wasn't able to get to Richard's funeral when he died, but I'm mm. sure there would have been a lot of people there. I met a guy in Edinburgh ooh, a couple of years ago, and we sort of stared at each other. I said, hang on, I know you. I remembered him from when we were teenagers together. And he's right. he's now uh, a leader in the Church of Scotland. Um, wow. And uh, we had a splendid chat and wished, you know, we could kind of roll back the years and talk about all the other people we'd known. But um, we're kind of all dispersed. So that, that, that must be a discouragement. But um, it, it, it it's very much, you know, the parables of the sower and so on. You're, you're sowing seed the whole time and you sow faithfully and you pray and you wait. And basically it's up to God what he does with that. Right. Um, but that that does demand patience and and a certain humility. Um, and I know that the great missionaries from 18th and 19th century, you'd get an entire generation where people would be just bashing their heads against a brick wall in a particular country or area sure. and seeing very little obvious fruit, quote unquote. Um, and then the next generation, somebody would come in and it would all happen right. because 
those first people right. had actually done the hard work mm. and had had to be patient and not see it. So I guess most of ministry is like that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's good. And I don't say that. I mean, I could feel that could be an excuse for laziness. Oh, well, never mind. It's, uh, I'm not going to worry if it yeah. doesn't work sort of thing. But no, we, we've got to do the work and it's up to God what happens with it. Sure. Well, and I think that um, most of the people I know in youth ministry, they truly love the young people they're working with and they want the best for them and they want them to kind of know the joy of the gospel. Sure. They want them to uh, experience the fellowship of the body of sure. Christ, all sure. these things. And so uh, they just keep hoping and waiting and longing yep. for yep. Yep. You know, these young people. Yep. So. And, uh, and you know, I have four children. I see it in them too. You know, you bring up children oh, yeah. um, and you hope and you pray and what happens, happens. And uh, <laughs> uh, they have their own ways of rebelling and preachers' kids have the hardest time of all, of course. <laughs> Did they Everyone rebel to become mm-hmm. evangelicals? <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think I will even begin to describe what my children have done. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them and their offspring you'll see around these walls. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so somehow you write like two books a week. Um, <laughs> so I don't quite know how you do that. Um, but the human side of you, uh, some what's something that you read or watch or listen to that you enjoy? Oh. Um, for fun. I, I read a certain amount of poetry. Um, I usually have various poets kind of close to hand. Um, mm. uh, Michal O'Shiel, who I use some of his poets in my big book, Paul, The Faithfulness of God, his stuff is amazing. Mm. And I, I love his work. I um, uh, think actually, yes, I wasn't expecting that question, but you know, every picture tells a story. Um, <laughs> what is what is closest to my to my computer yes, right there? Sitting on the desk. Um, and... Uh, and there's other stuff like that, Hopkins and Herbert. Um, Hopkins, Herbert and Elliot and Dunn, I suppose, really, really important for me. Music, of course, always and, and constantly. The only frustration with that is I can't write or edit with music on because it really? because it interferes with the rhythm of the words. If I'm, okay. I mean, I was just yeah. working through this book that I've got coming out next February and doing the sort of tiny corrections. And I was doing this last night and I just turn the radio off or the whatever because right. I'm trying to listen to the rise and fall of the sentences and if somebody else is giving me their rhythms even sure. if it's Bach or Mozart or whatever it'll just interfere so so I I do regret <laughs> like, <laughs> like I regret that I don't have time to play golf as much as I'd like to I need more than sort of once every three weeks or so if that um I don't listen to as much music as I as I would like to uh-huh. um and increasingly, I prefer live concerts to recorded music, even good recorded music. Something really? about something about a live concert, yeah, huh. yeah. So and I don't get too many of those. So um, it's it's kind of something which, when it happens, it's wonderful. Hmm. Um, you know, there's good music here. Yeah, Scottish Chamber Orchestra comes around and does things, and we sure. go to Edinburgh, and we get to London from time to time. So so music and poetry, um, golf, hill walking. I, I'm. I still classify myself as a hill walker in Scottish terms, but actually I haven't done it too much again, which is frustrating living in Scotland, all those wonderful mountains just yeah. to the north of here. Um, <laughs> that's that's an, an ambition still to, to get back up there. Right. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, um, I don't read <laughs> I don't read many novels. I I found when I was working in in 
senior church jobs, it was very difficult to read novels because if you're working as a dean or a bishop or something like that, it's like you're living in a novel the whole time, <laughs> trying to figure out who these characters are and That's what right. they're up to and why that all went horribly wrong. And the thought of opening a book and having to learn all these people as well, you know, just, <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So uh, you start crossing people's stories. Well, well, well. Do I need to know about this? I've just been trying to figure out all this. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's great. Okay, so you have these online courses yeah. as an offering that people could engage. Uh, you're already an author that so many youth ministers are reading because you're committed to this. You seem to be, at least. I'd love to have you comment on this. seem to be committed to writing uh, at the highest levels in terms of scholarship, but also in an accessible way. Mm -hmm. That seems to be something that you've been committed to, like the For Everyone series, for example, mm -hmm. was clearly mm -hmm. aimed to be for everyone. Sure, sure. So tell us about these online, online courses. Well, uh, what happened was about five years ago, something five, six years ago, um, a friend um, from Wisconsin who was a uh, uh, teaching pastor in a large church there, but was about to, to, to leave that and go and do other things, he said to me, um, uh, you know, you're doing all this traveling wouldn't it be better if we brought a camera to you and you wouldn't have to travel so much because when people asked you, you could say it's all, it's all now available online. That makes a lot of sense oh. because I could fill my diary wall to wall with trips, um, not just America, but, but lots of other parts of the world, some of which would be fun. And actually, I, I usually enjoy that kind of thing. What I don't enjoy is... You know, the days before, trying to get it all ready and packing again, and airports again, and airports. hotels again. Oh, horrid. Um, and then coming home and having to pick it all up and being behind with other stuff. And mm -hmm. and I just think, you know, I, I really want to spend time with my family and I, I, I like my home and my family and my job. I don't want to be running around the world. So anyway, mm -hmm. so David Seamoth, who, who is now the, he runs this thing called the Wisconsin Center for Christian Studies. He does other things with that as well. But one of the things he does is he comes here, be here this time next week, actually. Um, we sit in this room and we have two cameras. There's a guy who runs a, photography place just literally across the street. Hmm. He comes over with two video cameras, which is nice because it means I, I talk from notes. I don't have a script. But if I fluff something, we can stop and I can then start addressing the other camera and then it's very easy to edit. So it's a very easy editing Excellent. job. Um, and it's like two or three days of intense... Um, <laughs> We did we did the whole of Romans, I think 46 sessions in three days. Um, these are tw these 20 minute sessions. Oh my um, gosh. And that was that was quite exciting. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're doing acts next week, um, God willing, in two days. I mean, it would be about maybe 20 sessions. Um, so 10, 20 minute sessions, that's not too bad. So these are like mini 20 minute lectures? These, or are, these are 20, 20 minute lectures. And then usually we'll do a bit of Q&A where David will just toss a few general questions at me just because they those will then function as discussion starters um, if, mm -hmm. if they're used by groups. And the idea is obviously individuals can sign on and do it, but also they'll do group discounts, they'll have sure. church groups, whatever. Um, that's and that's that's been really exciting. We've, I, I'm hopeless at statistics. I, I think I remember David saying we had a, over 10,000 students in over 100 countries, and th but I'm, those are round numbers. I don't know. I don't, that's not surprising yeah, at all. Yeah. But it's, it's exciting to see that take off. Um, and we've tried to tie them in to some extent with some of the books so that one of the books will then be the key text for this particular course. Sure. But I mean, in terms of writing at academic or popular levels, it always surprises me that people are surprised because, you know, why wouldn't I want to communicate? 
Um, and, and okay, there are some, I suppose it's partly that some scholars are scholars because they are by nature people who just love sorting out the minutiae, you know, sure. in Myers-Briggs terms, the ISTJs. Who, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's fine. We, we need chartered accountants. Sure. That, that, that's grand. Um, but um, in terms of ministry, you want to be looking people in the eye. And, and if you see their eyes glaze over, um, <clears throat> we need to do something about this. Sure. You know, if you're lecturing at a big university, you can probably just carry on and say, we'll just catch up at the back there. But if you're actually <laughs> preaching or teaching a group, then if they're not getting it, and uh, somebody who remembers many, many times sitting with four um, bright, sassy children around the table with my wife egging them on, if they say, Dad, come on, you know we don't understand silly words like that. Now, okay, what was it I was saying? Right, you know, eschatological hermeneutics, what's that actually mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so from an early stage of my teaching career, I was committed to making stuff comprehensible. And actually, good old C.S. Lewis, back of all of that, Lewis said something, and I read this when I was quite young, where he says that um, clergy and theologians ought to have a compulsory exam to translate a yes. work of academic theology into the vernacular, and that if they can't do that, they either don't understand it or they don't believe it. Right. And I thought, that's a challenge. That is phenomenal. Um, so I've, I've always tried, even in my academic works, I've tried to write in a way that's accessible. Well, and, I think okay, there's all the footnotes. but um, Sure, yeah. I think that's why you producers connect with you so much because their work is the same exact I mean their work is really a work of translation Absolutely. they're trying to Absolutely. take this thing that was just preached about and make sense of it for a room of seventh grade boys absolutely, absolutely. you know and so how do we do that what are we what are we actually saying absolutely, you know, absolutely. how do we sit here with these freshmen in high school group of girls and make sense of what was just spoken of you know and yeah, so yeah, yeah. They, they deeply identify with it. I right. think that's why you're one of these like um Kind of consistent voices across denominations uh, for people in youth ministry because of your yeah, that's funny. work. That it, it is funny. Um, I've had the same experience with the emerging church folk in the uh -huh. UK and a bit in, in in the states. And I said, "Why are you inviting a middle-aged Anglican bishop to speak <laughs> in an emerging church context? You know, this is just like so counterintuitive." But for some reason, um, and I think it goes back to I'm, I'm basically a historian. I, I'm, I love the, the thatness of what's going on in the first century. Mm. But as the, the more you get your hands dirty with that stuff, the more it's about real life. It's about real problems, real people on street level yeah. um, in Corinth or Ephesus, wherever it is. And you can sense connections being made all over the place to the real life of where we are on the yeah. street today. Um, and, and real problems. I have just finished this um, so biography of Paul, which I really enjoyed doing as a biography mm. of, of trying to get inside Paul's skin mm. in a way that you can't do at an academic level. Because, of course, it involves guesswork about yeah. what he was thinking and feeling at certain times. Sanctified imagination, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But actually, all history is doing that. It's just that scholars like to pretend they're not and that it's right. purely scientific <laughs> and objective. But actually, history always involves disciplined imagination. Um, but uh, when you do that, it means that there's stuff happening which, yeah, the theology is there, but it's kind of, it's got its feet on the ground. And, mm. and I've always enjoyed that. But the, the, the Everyone series happened, as far as I was concerned, by accident, because back in the mid-90s, there's a newspaper, a church newspaper in England called The Church Times, mm. which is the kind of main Anglican newspaper in, in, in England. And... Uh, a former student of mine 
was at college with the wife of the editor of the Church Times when he was looking for somebody new to do the weekly um, 500 word column on the readings for that weekend. Mm-hmm. And my former student said to this good lady who said to her husband, why don't you ask Tom Wright? I was then Dean of Litchfield and it might work. So for five years, I did a wow. weekly column, 500 words a week. I used to do them in batches of a month or so on the readings for that weekend. And it was during that process, after I'd done that for two or three years and really rather enjoyed it, of distilling, you know, here are the three readings which are going to be read this week. And you've got 500 words, what are you going to say about them? And that was excellent. It was a wonderful exercise. And I really enjoyed it. And I've I've always done journalism on the side. I've enjoyed that. Um, And on the back of that, my editor at SBTK came to me and said, you know, William Barclay's commentaries are really passe. They're they're kind of outdated now. Something needs to take its place. We think it's you. And I thought, well, if I can write 500 words a week, you know, maybe I can have a go. Mm -hmm. I I regretted that many times, you know. when you've already, I, do, I did Mark and Luke first, and the thought that I still had Matthew and John to go, let alone the whole rest. <laughs> it's, it's a long, a long haul, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Where would you send someone if they were going to, for the first time in their life, read something you've written? Where would you want oh, them goodness. to start? It, it does depend entirely where they're coming from. Um, so non, non-seminary educated, to, yeah. you know. Early 20s. Yeah, I'd probably say Simply Christian. Simply Christian. Yeah, yeah. Which was written, I mean, the, the brief for that from Harper was um, A Mere Christianity of the 21st Century. Ha ha, wouldn't that be nice? But but that was the idea. <laughs> um, sort of walking through some, some, some basic stuff, but trying to make it friendly. Um, I think for Americans, Surprised by Hope has had a massive impact because so many Americans, Catholic and Protestant, have just grown up with heaven and hell as the framework mm. and have told, actually, that's not how the Bible does it. Mm. That's, that's, you know, it's not unimportant, but it's not the main story. Um, that's just such a shock. Yeah. And people find that as a release and exciting. exciting. So I, th- those would be two, two starting points, I guess. Mm. Um, but I would want people as soon as possible to... to yeah, get into the text, um, and, and if if the everyone's or something else helps them to do that, then so yeah. yeah, good. I enjoyed how in Surprised by Hope, how you talked about Thy Kingdom Come, Thy Will Be Done being one of the most powerful, you know, words uh, said, and what the implications are uh, here and now. Mm-hmm. For those that somebody in Alexandria, Virginia, last week gave me that. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, it's highlighted on earth as in heaven. That's wonderful. <laughs> that ju- that just just arrived. They they sent it to me. It just arrived in the mail two two three days ago. Wow. <laughs> for for so many young people that ha- are passionate about public service and making a difference in their community. But you don't see the same level of passion and feeling like they want to be engaged in congregational life. Mm-hmm. What's something that you would say in terms of how thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth? Yeah. It relates yeah. To, to what's going on. I mean, th- th- there's a thousand different things that are going on in the world at the moment, which Christians jolly well ought to be involved with, whether it's the refugee <laughs> crisis, whether it's the economic crisis, whether it's... Um, you know, global reconciliation, whether it's the Middle East, whatever. And I know whenever I talk in groups which include lots of young people about some of the things that I have talked about, you get people coming up with their heads sort of going around like this saying, where do we start? And I, I, I appreciate that. And I think part of the answer is 
if you're living within or in relation to a community which is a praying, worshipping community, which is a local manifestation of the body of Christ, you will find that different people have different gifts within that. And some people just are really, really good at working with old people and, and geriatric care, and other people are really good at working with kids who are doing drugs on the street, etc., etc., etc. And that actually God will often work through the thing to which you're naturally drawn. Um, sometimes it won't be. Sometimes you'll have to abandon that and do something that really is not your first best choice, but you'll discover a fresh vocation there. But very often it's something that draws you in and that if you're in a larger body of Christ, there will be people who will say, oh, we've got a project just starting up on such and such. We really need somebody to do this. And if the heart sings, then let's pray and go for it. And sometimes you may think, well, I'll do that for a year or two. It may not be quite. So, I mean, but, but the point is to make available to people a sense of all that is going on. And one of the glories of my previous job when I was a bishop um, was being in touch with people in different organisations who were working with deeply handicapped young folk, who were Christian aid workers, people campaigning about global debt, um, people working about the Israel-Palestine question, etc., and there was something for everybody to get involved in. No one person can do more than a little bit of any of that. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that's really exciting to me about what's happened in this last generation is that people, mostly people from traditional evangelical churches, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, have, have tacitly abandoned the sacred-secular split that the Enlightenment divide, that we are about going to heaven and then we'll leave the politicians and social workers to organise the world. Um, people still sometimes say that. Um, usually in Britain, cautious conservatives will say that. Sometimes in America, cautious conservatives. Sometimes actually um, nervous radicals in America because the, 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 the left-right spectrum works differently on the two sides of the Atlantic. So anyone who is frightened of having Christians coming onto their patch will say, oh, no, no, Christ and Caesar are completely different. Um, and we just have to say, sorry, no, um, Jesus is Lord. Now let's figure that out. Mm -hmm. I'm actually in touch with somebody at the moment who wants to do a podcast on, on, on his thing, who's very worried because he's read some of my stuff about global debt and global warming and various other things and says, oh, my listeners won't like that. So, well, so why do you want me on your podcast? <laughs> well, I like what you do Wrong about the guy. Bible. Well, excuse me. Is the Bible about real life or not? Now, okay, there are questions as to what you do about global debt and how you analyse global warming and whether and what you should do about it. But let's not say, um, oh, no, no, we don't want that kind of stuff here. Mm -hmm. um, that's like um, Prophet Amos, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, please don't prophesy up here. Get down yeah. to Judah. They need people like you there. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that's good. Oh, wow. So there are a thousand things that people can, but, but my sense is that what we're seeing is a backlog for a generation. People were not encouraged really to think too much about Christian political and social responsibility. And suddenly that door is opened and people say, oh goodness, it's all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But actually in so many communities, quietly, against a lovely thing to see, that where you have worshipping Christian communities, People without some great liberation theology theory behind them will just notice that something seems to need doing in the community and get a couple of friends together and they don't make a song and dance, they just get on with it. And that's that's a beautiful thing actually to witness as it happens. And it's what, what the church has always done.
All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with NT Wright. I hope that you guys enjoyed hearing Justin and a couple of his friends interview with NT Wright over seas in Scotland there. It sounded like an amazing time. And as I was listening, I was picturing myself there with the group and NT Wright study drinking coffee as well. What a nice image. I think I'll hang on to that today. If you would like to find out more about N.T. Wright, the good news is, is he is very accessible. There's so much literature out there that he's written, but he also has a website called ntwrightonline.org. There you can find audio, video, sermons, articles, book reviews, and a lot more. You could also just probably type his name in on Amazon and find a bunch of his works that are amazing and I really encourage you to check them out if you haven't. If you would like to keep up with our work here at the Missing Voices Project, follow us on our website missingvoices.flagler.edu or check us out on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Flagler College Youth Ministry. I'm so excited to be on this journey with you all. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you next time.